there's a lot of challenges in, in building community. Communities are formed almost magically because there is no there is no proven strategy to create a community because it's, it's, it depends on a lot of people's will to join a community and to be contributing members of the community. So I think the biggest challenges that I see and I mentor a lot of startups is not building the right incentives for developers. That's Amir Shavat, the Director of Developer Relations at Slack. Amir originally fell into developer relations by mistake, volunteering to work with a community of developers early on in his career. He's since led developer relation groups at Microsoft and Google for many years before joining Slack to focus on driving growth around the Slack developers platform. Amir is particularly passionate about bots. He joined Slack before bots were as popular as they are today and has seen many of them launch on that platform and others. He's even the author of Designing Bots, Creating Conversational Experiences Through O'Reilly. What Amir is talking about is the challenge of building a meaningful developer community around a product, idea, or company. And as we'll see, there are plenty of challenges to navigate. This is Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Today, we're speaking with Amir Shavat, the Director of Developer Relations at Slack. Early in his career, Amir discovered that he enjoyed working with other developers and supporting their work around specific products. In 1999, he also wrote an article that caught the eye of Google. But as a young Silicon Valley startup that could only afford to cover his flight to Mountain View, Amir decided to pass on the interview. He ended up joining Google several years later. Amir joins us to share his story, how he got into tech and startups, how he approaches building developer communities, why he's so passionate about bots, what it was like joining Slack, and much more. So let's get started. Hey, Amir, thanks so much for being on the show today. Of course, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We're super excited to get to hear more about, you know, your insights into tech and what it's like building developer communities. But before we get into all that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Where are you from and what did you study? So I'm originally from Israel. I'm an engineer by traits. Started my job as a front-end engineer, found out I really love back-end code, so moved there. Wrote an article about distributed uh, transactions, made probably the worst mistake of my career by saying no to Google at uh, 1999 after they read my uh, O'Reilly article and then continue on in small startups um, and big companies like Microsoft and Google at, at the end and now run developer relations at Slack. That's really cool. So how did you start your career out of school? What were some of your first few jobs? So in Israel, that's the default. Like everyone is an entrepreneur out of college, out of the army, and you start a startup or you join a startup. You don't join a big company. Uh, and everybody's about like making a big difference on the world and taking a lot of risks. So it wasn't very unique, but it was very exciting. I joined a startup that was, and my first startup was very way too early for what we built. We've built like Expedia in 98 so it was too advanced for the time. So that's one of the learnings that I learned about entrepreneurship. It's a lot about timing. So before we get too far into it, how did you really end up getting into developer relations as a field or industry? So I tackled, I, I got into uh, developer relations by mistake. I was an engineer. I started as a front-end engineer, then quickly found out that I, I'm really interested in algorithms and back-end engineering. And I joined a company 
which open sourced their code. And what they found out is that once they open sourced their code, there was a magical thing that happened, is which is a community formed around the code. And people started submitting changes and being opinionated about the code and finding bugs. And they actually didn't know how to handle this. So they took, they asked, who wants to manage the community of developers here? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I, I can do that. And I started engaging with developers and working on technical challenges and understanding the use cases that they're using our code. And that was amazing for me. Building something that not just people use, but people use to create new innovation. And then I decided this is like the, the best job in the world, working with developers and enabling them to create their own innovation. That's like another scale of awesomeness out there. That's awesome. So earlier you mentioned making a big mistake in 1999 when you turned down Google after they approached you based on a blog post that you wrote. Can you tell us more about you know what happened exactly and what was it like being approached by Google in 99? So I was part of that community and I was starting to create content and writing scripts and providing articles. And one of the articles that I wrote was around uh, distributed transactions and how they uh, are bound to fail in an infinitely scalable world and how we need to move into a world where we don't need to think about transaction, but actually compensation of our algorithms. Um, and then Google approached me 1999 and they said, hey, uh, we're a startup. What you wrote is really interesting. Do you want to join uh, Google? And they said, oh, yeah, we can we can sponsor the, the flights from Tel Aviv to Mountain View. But do you, do you have any friends that you can like stay at? Because we don't know if we can sponsor the, the hotel for the duration. And I thought to myself, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they'll be successful. I really want to stay in Israel. And it was probably one of the biggest mistakes of my career. But then I joined them at 2010, and I was uh, very happy. So the end, the end story was good, and I, was, I really liked uh, my time there. That's an amazing story. I'm, I'm really happy it worked out in the end. So you're currently the Director of Developer Relations at Slack. Can you tell us a bit more about how you created the opportunity to join the team there and what your role is all about? The opportunity was created when Slack decided to open up the platform and to launch the platform. And they reached out to me. I was uh, running Google scalable developer relations programs around the world. Uh, so things, common things like what people know around Google developer groups, uh, the community programs, women in technology, the Launchpad program, the startup program out of Google. So I was running that at scale uh, around the world. And then Slack approached me and said, hey, we're going to launch a platform would you want to be the first DevRel and build the DevRel organization? And being the risk lover that I am, I said, of course. And that's, that started uh, an amazing ride uh, with Slack. That's really cool. So what have been some of the projects you've had the chance to be a part of? The first project was amazing, which was the launch of the platform. So I came into Slack and they said, okay, in a month, we're going to launch a platform and let developers build apps at scale and change the way Slack works from being communication infrastructure to where work happens. We want to capture all these workflows inside, uh, inside Slack and make every workflow more delightful. And that was mind-blowing. How do you launch a thing which is going to be impactful, just like the mobile revolution? So this is a new 
type of revolution, which is a conversational interface revolution. And that was one of the amazing things. So I was one of the first people talking on stages with developers talking about bots. And this was way before all the rest of the players went in. So it was us and Kick leading the conversation. They were leading the conversation around the consumer uh, use cases. And there were a lot of other uh, thought leaders, but we were very few in terms of like market awareness. So then we created something called Botness, which is a collection of all the people who believe in conversational interfaces and that software is going to be talking to us. And now I think everyone has Alexa at home, uses bots at Slack, uh, and probably using a bot on Facebook Messenger or Kick. So that has been very, very exciting. So what is it about messaging and bots that has you so excited? The bot... There's a lot of things that excite me about this. One of the key things is that whenever there's a new user experience, there is a big opportunity. And if you think about it, we've been through a few user experiences like this, a few shifts. We moved into computers, and then we moved from desktop to the web, and then from web to mobile, and then from mobile now to a conversational interface. And if you think of whenever we moved from one step to the other, there was a big opportunity with that was created. For example, when we moved from desktop to the web, there was a, a company, small company that says, wouldn't it be awesome if we create a CRM on the web? And Oracle, which was the big company at the time, said, no, that's probably not going to work. But now the biggest uh, tower here in, in San Francisco is Salesforce, right? So whenever you move from one user interface to the other, there's a big opportunity to disrupt the market. Same thing for, for Uber and Lyft, right? I used to work in Android I, I didn't know that Uber and Lyft are going to be the killer use cases for mobile, but they are. So the opportunity, whenever you have this new user interface, the opportunity really excites me. The other thing that excites me really in a big way is what are the workflows that currently suck in our life that could be delightful with this user experience? I always ask people if they like to do expense reports. Do you like to do expense reports? No, no one likes expense reports. Okay, that's true. And I've asked it, I think, in 25 countries until now, and nobody says, yeah, I love to do expense reports. Uh, but if you, if you ask VPs, they usually say, yeah, I like to do expense reports. I pay for something, and then I give the receipts to my personal assistant, and I don't need to deal with all that crap, right? I, I have a delightful experience. I get paid back. And this is something that we should all have. We should all have this personal assistant, and, and it doesn't matter if it's, made, if it's made out of software. It's even better if it's made out of software, because then you can ping it in the middle of the night and ask what's, what's happening with my expenses. So all these things that could be more delightful in our life really excites me. So what's your approach to building developer-focused communities? The key with building a good community is having a good what's in it for me, for the developers. So like making sure that you're building the right tools that developers really need, making sure that there's strong alignment and a lot of transparency with what you're doing. So you're building things for them. There are your users. And one of the things that we did early on is to, to take a radically transparent approach, which is we open up our Trello board outside. So if you Google Slack platform roadmap, you get a Trello board, which we update, which is our roadmap for the platform. So I think one of the key pillars is having strong alignment with your developers, but also being very transparent. And, and I love the fact that when developers find bugs inside our documentation or our API, we don't have to say, hey, no, this is as usual or we'll fix it one day. We really take a big effort to fix it as soon as possible and let them know that we're fixing it. So being there and being a member of the community is, is very important to me. Anyone in my team, everyone in developer relations 
needs to be an engineer, but also build stuff on our platform so that they can feel the pain or hopefully the delight of building on our uh, on our APIs. So what's the most difficult part of launching a successful development community? What have been some of the most interesting and compelling outcomes? So I think for us, the biggest thing with the community is managing the rapid growth, actually, which is a good problem. Usually it's not that. I, I can talk about other challenges that I had in many other communities, but for us, the biggest challenge was how can we grow and provide support to a community that is exploding and just just managing the the expectation of people asking us questions was hard at the beginning. So my calendar was filled with a lot of developers that just want to have a conversation. So I did small hacks like having office hours, which proved to be very effective because people ask questions in a, with other people and then everybody benefited from that. So I think that that is the key. My next big challenge is how do we support communities all around the world? So up until now, we've been our efforts have been very uh, U.S. focused. So ten of my team now right now are in in the U.S. My next challenge is like how do I get this level of support for communities also in the U.K. and also in Japan and other places around the world. So as you mentioned. There are a ton of challenges with building communities. Given all the communities that you've been a part of and helped to build, what have been some of the biggest issues you've previously had to overcome? Yeah, there's a lot of challenges in, in building community. Communities are formed almost magically because there is no there is no proven strategy to create a community because it, it's, it depends on a lot of people's will to join a community and to be contributing members of the community. So I think the biggest challenges that I see, and I mentor a lot of startups, is not building the right incentives for developers. They built an API and they say, yeah, we built an API and nobody's very excited about it or nobody's, we've, we've done a meetup around this API and nobody showed up. So I think building the right incentive for developers to join the community is, is very important. And then taking aspects of actually building the community and making sure that it's continue on to grow is also very important. I would say that there's three aspects. There's fun, there's belonging, and there's growth. So how fun is it and what does it mean for you? And then belonging. For example, in Google developer groups, they used to be called GDG, uh, GTUGs, Google Technology User Groups. And when we changed it to GDGs, people got really offended because a part of their identity was to be a member of that community. They, they were G-tuggers, and now we're asking them to be called uh, GDGers. Uh, so think of also, always think about what is the identity and what does it mean to be a member of the community. And last but not least, make sure that there's always growth opportunities. So people will go through a community, they'll become a member of the community, and then they'll become a speaker of the, in, the, in the community and create content and maybe manage a community. But it's always need to be a path and a growth experience. So sometimes your community leaders uh, are going to grow out of being community leaders. So you always need to think about who is the next community leader in a certain place so that there's always continuity and growth. So I think the key is like, how do you initiate what are the key benefits of being a member of the community? How do you continue on investing in it? And how do you make sure that, it's, that it grows and, and becomes thriving uh, throughout challenges like growth and moving forward? 
those are some great insights. So what is next for you and the team at Slack? I think the first, I think that 2016 was all about educating people that conversational workflows work and what are bots and what do we mean when we want to say, hey, listen, build a Slack app. And then 2017 was all about usefulness. So we moved from, hey, this is a fun fact about elephants bots to uh, actually useful workflows and things that I want to do, like take vacation approvals, do expenses, manage reports from within Slack. I think next year, the our biggest challenge would be now that we have these workflows and useful bots, getting them actively used every day by as many users. So improving discovery, providing more surface area for bots to uh, expose what they do and educate developers about how to use them. That's awesome. Really looking forward to all the amazing things that, that you know are in store for you and Slack in, in 2018 and just to see the next level uh, of bot development and, and where it goes from here. So on that topic, what are some apps or tools, bots or otherwise, that you've recently downloaded and really love or that you, you know continually find yourself coming back to? So one of the tools that I use really recently is called Missions. So Missions enable you to have a, a user-centric tool to build workflows. I'm, I really like that. Also, like on a personal level, I've, I've, I've been an, I worked in Android and I've been an Android fan for a very long time. I've just last week got my first iOS device and I'm pretty excited about that. That's awesome. So what device did you end up getting and what pushed you to make the switch? I got the 8. I didn't know if I'd need to get the 10, but I wanted to get the 8 because it's a, it's a proven uh, user experience. And I wanted to learn a lot about like what is the approach that they took that was so successful in their design and user experience. That's really cool. I was a previous Android user myself and switched a few years back when I was working more primarily on apps for that platform as well to really understand the look and feel a bit more. So you'll have to let us know which one you end up liking more. I think Android Android has a lot of benefits, and I'm still debating between myself what is the what is the superior. But I think there is no superior. I think it's a matter of like what do you want to achieve and what type of customization you want to make, and it appeals to different audiences. Yeah. Yes, definitely agree. So along these lines, and on the topic of bots and conversational interfaces, you've actually written a book on that very topic that's been published through O'Reilly. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you decided to write the book and if there's any other resources that could help someone who's looking to build bots? So there is the book. Um, a year ago, a year and a half ago, O'Reilly approached me to write the book on conversational interfaces. And I, I told them that I really wanted to write the book on only on Slack bots, but they convinced me that I need to do a larger effort. And then I worked with Google and with Facebook and with Kick, how to build bots for um, multiple platforms. There's also tools around prototyping. I really like Walkie. It's uh, walkiebot.co, which helps you prototype conversational interfaces. I also like API.ai from Google because it helps you create an easy prototype for NAI-driven bots. There's also Watson, uh, which has a, a tool set that developers should definitely check, in, check out. And, and BotKit, which is one of the open source platforms uh, that we actually sponsored initially for building bots. That's awesome. So what was the actual process of writing the book like? It was a pain. I'm an engineer. So when I when people asked, when, when O'Reilly asked me, uh, when the guys in O'Reilly asked me if I could write the book in three months, I thought, yeah, I can do anything in three months. 
apparently it's really, really, really hard to write a book in three months. That's not something I'm going to do again. So now I'm writing another book, so I'm taking a year to write that book. So the first thing I learned is that not everything could be done in three months. The second thing is that I really, really made sure that I'm making my time. So I had a Google Docs function that counted the amount of words and gave me estimates about when am I going to complete my, my book. And at a certain level, at a certain point, I realized that I, I have to work through Christmas to make sure that the book is successful and on time. And when I gave them the book at the end of the day, they said, oh, that's really nice. You could have taken, you could have asked for another two weeks and that wouldn't be a problem. And I'm like, oh my God, why didn't I think of that? Because I think as a software engineer, you have a time, you deliver. So yeah, there were a lot of learnings from writing the book. Also, there was a lot of good community contribution, which, which is, I think, the best thing that you can ask for as an author. So, so many amazing people contributed to things like actually contributing content, to reviewing it, to giving me feedback on the things that I wrote. So I was very, very thankful for the community that we have. Awesome. Those are some really great resources. And we'll make sure that we link to all those so people can check them out. So we've discussed a bunch of different things throughout the course of the episode. But do you have any final thoughts or advice to leave us with? I, there's like two levels to that. I think one of the key uh, advice that I have is do something that is that you're very, very passionate about. I take a commute of an hour and a half every day in each direction. And that's like a signal to me that I really love what I'm doing. I, and I think that's coming back to your question in the beginning, like what drove me through my career? I was always driven by like, do I really like to do what I'm doing now? And if the answer was no, I was always working to change it. So be very passionate about what you do and look for opportunities uh, like bots uh, and other technologies like AI and other to accelerate what you're doing. Because I think entrepreneurship and being a software developer is very much like being a, a surfer on the beach. It's all around timing and skill and knowing when to work really hard and knowing when to relax. So I think timing, timing your career is very important. Awesome. What a great way to end the episode. Amir, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It was awesome to have you on the show. Of course. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love to hear about it and have you share it with friends. Find us on Facebook or Twitter at hack to start or drop us an email, hey at hacktostart.com. You can also subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes by finding Hack to Start on Apple Podcasts, Breaker Audio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.